millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, welcome back, everyone, to another awesome episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And what we're doing today is actually a lot like what we did last time, because we got actually so much positive feedback from the last episode, even in relation to others. You know, everyone everyone loves all of our episodes, right? But people loved the last one, our Drunkonomics and Plagues in History the most. So we decided to redo the format, where this time we've got some more beer. And we've got some like more kind of open topics where we're not just rattling off what we know and, and we're going to have a good time together and we don't know how long it's going to, it's going to last. So I'm excited. I'm excited too. And maybe before we hop into it, we do a a quick review of what we're drinking here today. Mm, What do you got, Eric? So I've got two beers on cue. I've actually been, I've been putting some Miller lights away before this so that I wasn't like too drunk coming in. But what I've got is a Taiwan beer, which you might not know is from Taiwan. And the other beer that I have is a full bore scotch ale, which is brand new to me. So I'm, I'm kind of breaking out a little bit. What about you? I'm having this Omegang, the Three Philosophers. Yeah, good stuff. I'm a fan of it. I, I actually took a minute to look up who the three philosophers were because yeah, for a while yeah. I, thought, I thought it was just Socrates and Plato and... Aristotle. Uh, yeah, but you look at the cover of the... It's uh, clearly what's on, not. It's clearly not, right? So uh, a very, very quick Google led me to a website called The, the Efficient Drinker. Uh, this is a 9.7% <laughs> ABV <laughs> beer. <laughs> Um, oh, we're going to have a good time. <laughs> this is going to be a good show for everyone, or at, at least a good show for me. At least for us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a reference to William Blake's An Island in the Moon, a satire written in 1784 and published posthumously. There are three main characters, Quid the Cynic, Suction the Epicurean, and Sip Sop the Pythagor- uh, Pythagorean. No idea what it is, but hey, efficientdrinker.com, I like what you're serving. And... If anyone has read this and has any thoughts on it, please write uh, hosts. We have a new email address, hosts at reconsideredmedia.com. It gets to both of us at the same time. It took us four and a half years to come up with this idea. So now you can get to both of us. We also, we also have the, that other new email address. Uh, hello at reconsiderdmedia.com. That's and for what's like the difference. General inquiries to hello. Uh, you want to like correspond with the hosts. We actually don't get so much uh, listener mail that, oh God, I'm, I'm inviting a wave here, but we don't actually Do get it. so much listener mail that we can't respond to everything yet. 
So if you want to like talk about stuff rather than, I don't know, ask, uh, you know, ask about an advertising deal or something like that, email hosts at. Yes. Now, if you do want to chat a bunch and communicate, we have some stuff in the works. I'm going to I'm going to tease you a little bit with what's coming. But in the meantime, uh, you can go on reconsiderMedia.com and just comment on the individual posts of either articles or podcasts. And we do respond fairly often, if not all the time. If you haven't checked it out yet, um, we have a new website up. There's more to come and we'll talk a little bit more about it sort of in the near future. But we got some stuff coming your way for interactivity and such. Another thing I just want to mention is uh, as part of this general re-interactivity business, our handles on Facebook and Twitter are now a little bit different. Mm. It's now at Reconsidered Media on both Twitter and Facebook. So just a heads up, if you follow us, I think it doesn't matter. It updates automatically. Yeah. But like, if you want to interact with us on either of those, at Reconsider Media. Reconsider, not just a podcast. Mm-hmm. And one last announcement, and pay attention to this one, because you have a choice. And that choice is whether you're coming to Intelligent Speech this summer. Now, many of you couldn't make it to Intelligent Speech 2019 because it was in New York City, and a lot of you are not in New York City. This one is on the internet. So if you're listening to Reconsider, you probably have the internet. So there's no excuse for not coming. Um, I actually, you know, Xander and I don't get any of this money, but we do get, you know, exposure and we get to share stuff, you know, share cool ideas with you. So I will be at Intelligent Speech on June 27th. It's an eight hour bonanza of, of podcasters who are like way cooler than we are. Even including uh, Robin, oh gosh, what's his name from History Byzantium, which is my new favorite history podcast. He'll be there. Heather Tasco, a dear friend of ours, will be there. Roy Field's organizing the whole thing. I don't remember if Mike Duncan's going to be there. I'm pretty sure Patrick Wyman's going to be there. Big names. We are humbled to be part of it. Eight hours of of just Titans plus uh, you know a few of us stragglers on. And the early bird tickets for just ten bucks are still up. So if you think about ten bucks for eight hours. The only better, you know, entertainment, infotainment per dollar out there is Dan Carlin himself, the legend, if you pay a dollar a show. And, but if you want to come join us, it's intelligentspeechconference.com. And I'd love to have the support. Uh, it was great having all of you last time. It was, it was a real ball. And I'll make sure that I have like a like beer with me uh, hangout afterward for everyone who shows up. So on to the show. On to the show. today. We're talking about something that may be on some folks' minds, and it's another one of these conceptual shows that um, we're going to riff on a little bit. But, you know, what happens when the emperor has no clothes, right? What what do you do when... His willy gets cold. He really gets cold, and, you know, I don't have anywhere to go with that. What do you do? And uh, this, this show is, of course, nicknamed The Passion of Tyrion and Virus. So we're going to be talking through history about a number of leaders who in various ways were sort of unprepared or didn't mesh well with the system, dare I say, some of them unfit to rule, and how the, how like the institution, the government institution around them tried to deal with that. And I'm going to talk about what made us decide to do this for a minute, but, but a pre-topic actually I want to get to is uh, these protests against the lockdown. And, you know, again, I I say this over and over. I live in pretty liberal circles. And 
I don't know if Cal- I don't know yet if California is more liberal than Massachusetts, but they're definitely like, you know, get, they're they're definitely like fighting for number one here. And um, you know, I, I think everyone that around me that resp- that thinks about the protests, like the protests in Michigan, um, thinks that kind of the whole thing is stupid. And where I want to be clear that I agree is that everyone getting together and like also not wearing masks, like choosing to not wear or like wear these cutout masks is is unnecessarily dangerous and irresponsible. But there's an interesting, I think there's an interesting angle to this where, you know, obviously there's a state of emergency, which is like, there is some constitutional space for this in, in, the, in every state in the union to be able to declare a state of emergency for a good reason and lock stuff down or, and, and, and essentially suspend what are otherwise liberties that you have, right? Like we have the right to assembly, like it's in the constitution. And now we're saying you can't assemble temporarily. And, and like we're, liberties are being suspended. It's a real thing, right? It's a real thing. And, and of course, I think one of the places that I'm at least sympathetic to the impulses behind these protests, even though I, I very much disagree with how they're being executed. And of course, there's just a bunch of people there screaming MAGA and like, you know, sneezing everywhere and just making life harder for the rest of us. And I'm really annoyed by that. But the, the impulse I'm sympathetic to is a very American one where we go, you know, when governments declare a state of emergency for something and then claim a lot of authority and suspend civil liberties, they tend not to they tend not to give them back. Right. Yeah. There's that expression. Never let a good disaster go to waste. Right. And it's because when governments take power out of emergency situations, they tend not to hand it back. I mean, look at what look at the post 9-11 world. Exactly. And it's not like post 9-11 was a scarier place than or a scarier time than almost any other time in history. Right. We were in the Cold War for half a century and that was far more existentially like it's not even comparable. But one terrorist attack and it's like, oh, you know, turns out we don't need a warrant for mass surveillance anymore. And if you don't know, I I have a strong position on the issue of mass surveillance. We did a show about it way, way, way back, I think in like 2016. You can check it out. But that hasn't gone away and the capability still exists. The um, authorization for military force that was originally written justified to retaliate against Al-Qaeda is still being used in the war on terror. It was used to attack ISIS, even though ISIS very clearly was founded as like a branch that didn't want it wanted to differentiate itself from Al Qaeda. I thought Al Qaeda was too easygoing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, and it's it's still there. So that that is a thing that happens. Yeah, and you know what's interesting, of course, is that no one was like after nine eleven. You know, three thousand Americans died total. And you know how many more could have died in the future? And you can scaremonger people pretty well by being like, "What if they got nukes, right?" and, and stuff like that. But you know, the, the Department of Homeland Security has not gone away and it still spends a ton of money and spy, you know, and the NHS spies on us more. And, you know, the, the did the Patriot Act even ever get repealed? Oh, boy, I should know that. I, yeah, I, so should I. But it got extended, certainly. And I, I, look, some of you are too young to remember, but there was a time you could just like blitz through through airplane security. And I've I've always, you know, and. Now it's it's it got hardcore late two thousand one and it never stopped and I of course think that the whole thing is just security theater because you tell me whether someone is ever again going to hijack a plane and fly an American airplane and fly it into a building right it's never going to happen again 
There are locks on the pilot doors. And like no group of Americans is going to go, okay, terrorists, you're hijacking the plane. We should just like sit back and let you fly it. And I'm sure it'll be fine, right? That will never happen again. And so what are they really protecting? And someone could go, well, they could blow up the plane. It's like, well, they can blow up trains too, right? Trains are not guarded at all. No, there's no security for trains, right? So, so like, and so the whole security theater around it is ridiculous. And so uh, anyway, I'm, I'm getting on a bit of an old beer me, beery man rant here, but you know, the point is, it is the case that we do have to be very thoughtful about the emergency powers that our leaders and governments take on, even when the threat is real. And, and how do we get those back? Yeah. The, the flip side of that, of course, is you can argue, well, yeah. if, you know, the, the threat is substantial, as many people thought it was post 9-11, then, you know, we do need to give up some degree of our uh, personal uh, liberties. And the argument, the way it was, you know, framed politically back in the day was um, it was like freedom versus safety, right? You can only have one or the other. And there's that famous Ben Franklin quote. But regardless of how you look at that, the the point is there has to be some sort of risk. So then you have to ask yourself, how do you evaluate risk? How do you measure risk? Well, there's lots of ways to measure risk. But one simple way and effective, if maybe not completely comprehensive, is just the number of people who die. How many people die from a certain event or certain cause? And you know, you, you can define the event differently. Like in the case of an attack, it's kind of all going to be at once, unless like it's, unless it's like a big, big, big war. And in the case of a flu outbreak, it can occur over a certain period of time. Now, the there's this post that our dear friend Heather Tesco of the Renaissance English History Podcast, which we've been on and she's been on our show. I uh, hope you're doing well, Heather. That just caught my eye because the numbers are a little striking. So everyone now is aware, not everyone, sorry, but the a narrative that is floating around right now a lot is 60,000 Americans have died from COVID-19, which is more than the 58,000 Americans that died in all of the Vietnam War from the point when we got involved in sort of like the late 50s, early 60s mm-hmm. until when we withdrew in the 70s. So in the course of about a month and a half, maybe two months now, depending on when you call the start date, when a lot of people started dying in the US, 60,000 people have died in about two months. And that is an order of magnitude and then some greater than the number of people that died in 9-11. And really the number of Americans that have died in the last 20 years from terrorist attacks. Right. So is that a substantial risk, those number of people dead? Well, you might say, okay, but that's not a comparable thing because it's not an entity that's very like purposefully initiating a hostile attack. The, the virus is not conscious. And the better thing to do is compare it to the number of, uh, flu, the number of people who die from the flu, right? And that's like 40 or 50,000. And then everyone's, of course, talking about the Spanish flu. And this is the point that Heather made, mm. is that as a result of the Spanish flu, 675,000 Americans died. And, right, and that was over the course of about 18 months. There was this first wave and the second wave that was worse. And Eric, you said it was in October of 1919. That was the worst month. Yes. And in which like 200,000 Americans died in the bloody month. Right. So a huge portion of that came from one month in the second wave after it went away for the summer. So right now, about two months in, month and a half, depending on how you count it, of the COVID-19 crisis, we are at 10% of the number of Americans that died in the Spanish flu. And we're just getting started now. We do have more medical knowledge today. We know a lot more about how viruses work than they did back then. 
And arguably, we have the ability to track them more if we can get everything isolated enough, but we're not anywhere near that. Well, and, and if we can use people's cell phones to track all of their activity to understand how things are spreading, which Google and Apple were like, hey, we could totally do this. And everyone seems fine with it. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I, I cannot stand that. Yeah. Because once that capability, well, capability already exists. Once right. you authorize the government use of that capability, it's never going away. Yeah, that right? one ain't going away. Uh-uh. No. Yeah. Because there's always a security threat, right? Yeah. There's always a security threat. There's always a reason to use that. And and so, yeah, this is me. We're, we're going back and forth here because, of course, this is complicated. But, like, this is where I have a little bit of sympathy with these, with the protesters. We've got, like, there is a lot of, you know, like, it's been all over the news to talk about the government using your cell phone to track you. I don't like that. I don't and, want that. But, like, you know, and, and, and people aren't freaking out about that. And, well, some are. Right. But the thing is, we've tribalized so much that the people who are freaking out about it have they're wearing their, you know, they're wearing their team's jersey. Right. So they're shouting like MAGA, MAGA. Right. And like, you know, there's Trump banners there. And so, of course, those of us, you know, those those of us Americans who might not be Trump supporters are like, well, these guys must be idiots. Right. Because they're wearing the other team's colors. When, like, of course, all Americans should be sitting here thinking, well, do we really want the government literally tracking us with our cell phones? And I think this is a great example of how tribalism has paralyzed our ability as a people to actually decide as Americans, which we all are, whether we want to be stuck with each other or not. It's paralyzed our ability to be able to say, you know what? We all feel this way about something. Right. Um, because because we have to put our team's jerseys on whenever we talk about it. And, and somehow now, like it's it's been it's become normal to make like references to Nazis every single time there's a protest. Right. There's this I'm sure you saw this. Uh, the woman in um, I forget where the protest happened, but she was holding a sign that said Arbeit mich frei, which oh, yeah. I don't speak German, but it, it says it means work will set you free. Yes. And it's a sign that hung over like the the wel- welcome entrance to Auschwitz. Yes. So and and then of course when she was interviewed, she's like, whoa, 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 wait, no, I have Jewish friends. I have Jewish friends. Okay, whatever. But all of this, this kind is, of brings this us is probably yeah. This is probably folks uh, the folks that were protesting uh, Governor Whitmer in Michigan. Um, there's there's a lot of accusing Whitmer of being a Nazi. So we are much like we always are. Uh, splitting along tribal lines, not not exclusively. And I think there are certain things about this pandemic that certainly, at least personally for me and anecdotally, has have uh, uh, kind of laid bare people's judgment, uh, their ability to judge the severity of certain issues. But we're still thinking along tribal lines. So, for example, you can have a president that mm-hmm. makes the suggestion, and I mean, we'll include the link of President Trump saying this, that people inject themselves with disinfectants. He, now, he didn't say you should inject yourself with disinfectants. He said, oh, there's some people who are saying there's some studies that are saying that maybe no, maybe this would be a good idea. He didn't say that. What he said was, hey, you I know he what? Did. I just no, what he's, he didn't say studies. He said, you know, let's play the clip right here. So here's the clip. 
With no silver bullet to knock out the coronavirus, President Trump is suggesting medical experts look into exposing the human body to light and heat as a possible treatment. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. President Trump even posing the question to Dr. Deborah Burks on his coronavirus task force. Deborah, have you ever heard of that, uh, the uh, heat and the light relative to certain viruses? Yes, but relative to this virus? Not as a treatment. I mean, certainly fever yeah. is a good thing when you have a fever. It helps your body respond, but not as I've not seen it came after Bill Bryan, who leads Homeland Security's Science and Technology Division, said his researchers found the virus does not survive in warmer and more humid conditions. The virus dies the quickest in the presence of direct sunlight. But the virus has thrived in areas with more humid climates like New Orleans and South Florida and overseas in places like Singapore and Brazil. Bryant later added that heat alone would not kill the virus and people should continue to follow social distancing guidelines. It would be irresponsible for us to say that we feel that the summer is just going to totally kill the virus and that if it's a free for all and that people ignore those guides, that is not the case. President Trump also pondering the possibility of injecting someone with a disinfectant. Then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning that you're going to have to use medical doctors with? But it sounds it sounds interesting to me. This morning, medical experts are nearly unanimous in saying that trying unproven treatments can prove to be very dangerous, especially ingesting or injecting disinfectants. In fact, the maker of Lysol has issued a warning this morning concerned that people may try it. The maker of Lysol is saying we must be clear that under no circumstances should our disinfectant products be administered into the human body through injection, ingestion, or any other route. As with all products, our disinfectant and hygiene products should only be used as intended and in line with usage guidelines. The concern, Savannah, is that people may try this at home. Okay, so the clip is played, and specifically what he said was, you know, what we know is that is that you know you put disinfectant in, you know, on the coronavirus, and it kills it in a minute, right, a minute flat. And so maybe we could look into, is what he said. Maybe we look at could look into injecting disinfectants in people and and just cleaning something like cleaning things up, right? So you just heard the clip. We haven't just heard the clip, but but he didn't say there were studies suggesting that injecting disinfectant could help. He had said. We know that disinfectant kills the coronavirus. Maybe we could put it inside our bodies. That's an important distinction. Thank you. Yeah. Now, clearly, this is nonsense, right? You don't, you don't want to swallow or inject bleach or other disinfectants into your body. It will kill you. Right. And in fact, one of the, the deadliest things every year, and uh, back in the day, I wrote an article about how dangerous terrorism is relative to other things that we do yeah. on a daily yeah. basis, accidental poisonings. Accidental poisonings kill an incredible number of people every year. I let me let me just double check the figure. Poisonings death. We'll include a link um, up on on uh, the show notes, reconsidermedia.com to the article that it's, I wrote about it's this. It's sixty three thousand yeah. people, and that does not include drug poisoning or opioids. That's right. right. This is this is. 
Like, so this isn't, you know, because we have an opioid crisis. So that's that's one thing. And that's a form of poisoning. But this is due to exposure, accidental exposure to noxious substances. 63,000 people die every year, which is insane, of which apparently 5,200 are one-year-olds. So making that suggestion is, I feel com- confidently saying this nonpartisanly, um, inco- incompetent, at least on this one particular issue. And so now we're getting into our core topic, which is like dealing. What do you do? What is what? What do you do as like a person in the government or a body of people in the government when the person in charge doesn't really know what they're doing? And I don't want to say that either one Trump in every circumstance doesn't know what he's doing, or two that he's the only person who doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. Right. But in the case of human anatomy, biology, and medicine. He doesn't know what he's doing. Like, it happens to be the case that, you know, I, I, I'm going to speculate here. Like, if you pull the average five-year-old and say, if you inject disinfectant in your body, what happens? The average five-year-old would say, you would get hurt. Like, that would be bad. And so it's probably the case that, that what's, you know, that Trump at least, you know, he, he either, like, lacks the wherewithal or, or the knowledge to understand that injecting disinfectant in you is bad. and. And what that means is that he has, you know, in, in this kind of vein of, you know, when he talked about like putting light in the body, which also makes no sense at the cellular level, which is where the coronavirus acts. Like he said, you know, we could put light in people's bodies, but, but like if you, sh- like the only cavities in your body that you could shine light on are like, you know, like the stomach and such, but, the, but it wouldn't help because the, 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 the coronavirus is like impacting the cells all throughout the body. Like it's just totally nonsensical. And and so there is this and, and so hearing this kind of put me over the line. Like I, I was the one who came up with this episode idea and it put me over the line to say, I think there's I actually have enough credibility to say like fairly objectively that there is this profound gap of understanding in the president for, you know, for for human biology. And it is it is a level of it is a level of of worrying when the president doesn't have an understanding of the human body that a, a fifth grader would have, but you can actually work with that as long as the president is able to understand that he doesn't understand. And unfortunately, that's not generally what President Trump has been doing with with COVID. Right. Um, because if he if he were, he would be, you know, consulting one of his epidemiology advisors. And before going and saying these things on national television, right? right. And I, I understand the argument that, oh, well, he doesn't know he's not an expert and that's fine. I don't yeah. think leaders should necessarily be experts in all fields, but they have to know how to delegate responsibility well and know when to listen to the people who know more about an area than they do. And he hasn't been doing that. Right. So there's this thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which you're linking to. It's pretty common. You probably all know people who have it. When, and specifically, the Dunning-Kruger effect is... If on the x-axis you have how much you know about something, and on the y-axis is how confident you are that you know what's going on, the curve along that is actually a U, like a U shape, like the letter U. And people who know the most about stuff are fairly confident, and people who know the least about stuff are fairly confident. And I, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear that in at least the topic of epidemiology and human biology and medicine. 
the president has a bit of a Dunning-Kruger effect where, you know, of course, not only did he mention injecting yourself with bleach or putting bleach in the lungs to clean them, but also, you know, but also, you know, obviously like UV light in the body somehow, which doesn't even make sense. Or, um, you know, he he kept pitching hydroxychloroquine. I don't even know how to pronounce it. I've only read it when when there was no particular reason to believe that that, you know, in any sort of and, and he said, of course, you know, the, the WHO and the CDC say the death rate is X, but I have a hunch that it's different. Right. He literally said the words, I have a hunch. It's it's lower than that. And it's like your hunch is not useful here. Like, please don't share your hunch like that doesn't help. And it's not fact based. And and the guy thinks that his hunches are as valid as data, um, at least in this in this regard. And to buy the guy a little bit of space on the hydroxychloroquine. Chloroquine. Thank you. Hydroxychloroquine. One thing that came out uh, from a few agencies that, you know, news agencies that don't like him were that, oh, Trump is pitching this hydroxychloroquine because he's invested in it. Right. He's corrupt. Ah, and corruption. Yeah, exactly. And of course, he was invested in it, uh, and that's public. But it turns out that he is invested in a mutual fund that owns some that some portion of that mutual fund owns some stocks in a company that makes it, and he maybe has four hundred dollars invested in it. And so it's it's one of these like it's technically true, but it's a naked BS attack on the guy. So you need to be skeptical of criticisms of him as well, right? So this is why I think the um, example we get to focus on is just the guy's own words, right? Let's not talk about anything else that anyone is, is claiming about him. Just have his words. This is what he said. This is what we know based on that. And how do you deal with that? How have other people dealt with it when leaders have been uh, less than fully informed? That's right. what we're going to talk about on this show. Now, one example, Eric, that you dug up that I love, I was not familiar with this, yeah. actually, but um, so Democratic uh, Representative Hank Johnson had this session in Congress where he was grilling a Navy admirable, admiral, admiral, that he's admiral. probably an admirable admiral, but he is and an admiral. Can you say that 10 times fast? Admirable, admiral, admirable, admiral, I'm done. Okay. All right. So two and a half isn't bad. It's better than I thought. So. Congress, Hank Johnson, Navy Admiral. And he was asking whether or not there were there was a threshold at which too many troops, if you added too many troops to Guam, the island, that the island itself would tip over from the weight of the troops. Yeah, that was a real question. We'll have the link. Uh, actually, why don't we just play the link right here? Can we do yeah. that? Yeah, let's so, do that. Yeah, play here's, the link. Him, here's him asking it. Well, this is a uh, island that at its widest level is what 12 miles from shore to shore and at its smallest level uh, or smallest uh, uh, location it's uh, seven miles uh, between one shore and the other is that correct I don't have the exact uh, dimensions, but uh, to your point, sir, I think Guam is a small island. Very small island and about 24 miles, if I recall, long. So 24 miles long, about 7 miles wide at the least widest uh, place on the island and about 20 
about 12 miles wide uh, uh, on the widest part of the island. And um, I don't know how many square miles that, that is. Do you happen to know? I don't have that uh, figure with me, sir. I can certainly supply it to you if you'd like. Yeah, my, my fear is that uh, the whole island will uh, become so overly populated that it will tip over and, uh, and capsize. Uh, we don't anticipate that. The, uh, the Guam population, I think, currently about 175,000, and again, with 8,000 Marines and their families, it's an addition of about 25,000 uh, more uh, into the population. And, uh, and also, uh, things like the uh, environment, uh, the sensitive areas of uh, the environment, coral reefs and those kinds of things, and I know that you know, lots of people don't like to think about that, but, you know, we didn't think about global warming either. And um, now we do have to think about it. And so uh, I'm concerned from an environmental standpoint whether or not Guam is the, the, the best place to do this relocation, but it's actually the only place. Is that correct? Uh, this is the best place. This is the farthest west U.S. territory that we own. And, uh, you know, I, this is part of our nation. Uh, and in readdressing the forward presence and posture importance uh, to Pacific Command, uh, Guam is uh, vital to this decision. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, we're back. Go ahead. So, yeah, and and of course Trump later said about his about his comments on injecting bleach that he was being sarcastic and the reason he was being sarcastic was, you know, he he was just given some some fake news media uh reporter a hard time. And it's just clearly not true. You know, he's looking over at Dr. Bricks and Dr. Poor Dr. Bricks is sitting there like, what do I do here? Oh, God. Like, I, do I call the guy? And this and, and do I call the guy in public? Do I um, uh, do I do I just shut up? What do I do? And of course, the admiral had to go through the same thing. So we've we've linked this YouTube video of this poor admiral sitting there going, oh, this is, you know, and in his mind, he's going like, this guy's an idiot. And. <laughs> Um, you know, one of the reasons I think this example is so important is that Trump is not the only person in the history of the United States government to to be, you know, to 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 
be in over his head in a subject, right? And, you know, you or I would like laugh this person out of the room. But what's so interesting, and this is what we're really going to explore, what's so interesting is that the people who support these folks, right? So the admiral reporting to, you know, who, who, is, who is accountable to civilian authorities, right? And understands his duty in that, tried to treat this question with respect. And, you know, Dr. Bricks and Dr. Fauci are trying to like walk this line between, you know, not publicly declaring, publicly saying that the president is an absolute idiot for saying this and, and also trying to make sure that misinformation and disinformation does not permeate through the public and cause the situation to be worse. And we do know that, that some people, I don't know how many, but there is at least more than one report of people who put disinfectant in their bodies at the suggestion. And so people have been hurt by that statement. And, and, and they have to take some responsibility themselves as well, of course. And so these, like, these poor folks who are in this situation, we're going to talk about them today. So one of the, I, I, you know, we're going to actually kind of start from the bottom here and, and build up. Right. So like foundationally, it is the case that every leader makes makes some mistakes. And one of the questions is, why do we even follow leaders? Right. What is the nature of power itself? Because Donald Trump clearly has power. He can you know, he wants things to happen. And disproportionately to you or me, the things he wants to happen tend to happen. Whereas I want all sorts of things to happen and they don't happen somehow, right? So he has power and more power than you or I have. You've mentioned to me before that uh, the way that uh, Tolstoy talks about Napoleon and Napoleon's power and war and peace is something. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So I think, you know, as we explore the nature of power and, and there's like a Game of Thrones quote about this, about which we can explore maybe in a minute about like the the cell sword and the boat and the priest and the king and the merchant are all telling him to kill the others and who has the power. Um, Varus asks this. We should probably talk about that. But, but when Tolstoy at the end of war and peace, which I love war and peace. It's a, it's a, I, it was truly a pleasure to read. And unfortunately war and peace is best known for being long. And therefore, like you say, like, oh, yeah, I read War and Peace. But like, wow, wow, you read War and Peace. That's impressive. It's like it's not impressive. It's just, you know, it just takes longer. It's like Mm -hmm. someone else read three books in the time I read War and Peace. Like, don't be proud of me. Just go read it. It's cool. But you read War and Peace and you and at the end, Tolstoy, at the end of this, this saga, Tolstoy talks about, well, gosh, why on earth did. I think 300,000 or 500,000 Frenchmen get up, you know, stand up and decide that they were going to march across all of Europe and kill Europeans and kill Russians. And, and, you know, and the simple answer is because, well, Napoleon said so. Well, okay, Napoleon said so, but they could have said, well, no, thanks. Right. And, and he just kind of keeps going. It's like, well, what would have happened if you just said no thanks? Well, someone would have like thunked you over the head and put you in, in the dungeon. Well, that required Napoleon, you know, indirectly saying that person, if someone says, don't, you know, don't join the levy because it was a conscription, right? So if someone chooses not to join the conscription, 
you need to thunk them over the head and, and put them in prison. And well, that person didn't have to either. They had a choice. They chose to get along with it. And, and why is that? And uh, it's because if they don't thunk someone over the head and put them in prison for not answering the levy, right, for not being, you know, being willing to be conscripted, they get thunked over the head and put in prison by someone else. That's a meta thunking, dude. Right. It's a meta thunk. And and so it, it you know, it, this is very much a turtles all the way down kind of thing where if where someone has power because humans decided they have power. And if everyone someday woke up and decided, you know, we don't really care what Napoleon thinks, he would have no power anymore. And so ultimately, everyone's participating in this game, in this structure, participating actively. And that's how, that's how you get power. And there's probably an evolutionary argument that Tolstoy wasn't aware of, which is that you know, the clans, you know, in, in human evolution and, and even in like ape evolution before that. Yeah, I guess, sorry, we're apes, but whatever the, the you know, all the predecessors, um, all of our great apes, right? We're social animals. We have these groups. These groups have to fight each other sometimes. And which are the ones that survived to pass on their genes? It's probably the ones who were willing to have a hierarchy. Right. Who like had the instinct to exist in a hierarchy and let someone make decisions at the top. And so it's these hierarchical types of thinking that made it to us. And so we have hierarchical thinking in our heads. So in the modern day then, or at least taking us out of uh, prehistory, what, what's the difference between uh, a guy like Napoleon, who everyone decides to get up and organize themselves in single file lines and walk across Russia in winter, and someone else who says, hey, you should do the same thing, and everyone else goes, nah. Right. Well, there's a lot of things, right? But you can... You can abstract all of those different elements of that personality and political structure with this idea of legitimacy. And yes. the last episode that we talked about, actually, I don't remember if it was the last episode of the one before that, but um, it was it was like pre-World War I, 19th century. And I got a little bit into the this Holy Alliance thing, which was oh. Prussia, Austria, Russia. That was the last episode. It was the last episode. That's what I thought. And it, it was those three countries post-Napoleon in the 19th century. And they forged this alliance to maintain this concept of autocratic legitimacy or the idea that they, as prince or kings, had the right to rule. Right. So how do you maintain that uh, mirage or not a mirage, however you want to look at it? Well, part of it right. is by making sure that enough people don't get the idea that they don't like the form of government that's currently governing them. Right. So how, what, 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 what impacts that idea of legitimacy? Well, there are different things and different styles of government, right? I mean, in our form of government, a democratic government, a Republican government, uh, we elect people, right? Either directly or indirectly. And if you win, then the, the person who's in that office is legitimate, at least until the point that they're either voted out or if they're uh, taken out of office by whatever, whatever. But Well, they taken are the- out of office by a legitimate process. Correct. That we all agreed to, or at least someone before us agreed to. Yeah. And, and we agree to it generally as a social, social, blah, blah, social contract because uh, constitution, something, something. And like we, there are just certain you know, things that are written down that we say are beyond norms, right? And we've talked about the distinction between right. norms and value, values like in ancient Rome and actually having a written constitution. We'll get into some more Rome today for you Rome fans out there. Yeah. Democracy is one way of having legitimacy, and we happen to have that in the United States, right? So Trump is in charge because the way that we vote for the president, he won that that system, right? He got the more, you know, we have an electoral college, he got more points, congratulations. 
you're the president. There are some questions about whether that's a legitimate way of choosing of choosing presidents, but but you know Americans and and Westerners in general are so devoted to the rule of law as a concept that that if we don't like the way people are chosen, we're going to change the process for next time rather than you know rather than actually revolt. And you know, of course, in 1860, that didn't happen. And and probably someone has written, you know, has, has spent 30 years of their life studying why at that moment the rule of law wasn't followed. But like even the people, you know, I, I know some people are like he's not my president, but, you know, are they going to what start breaking the law? Just because it's like, no, or well, I mean, they might, but but not in big ways. People just protest. Right. And protest is, is something that guess what? It's protected by your First Amendment rights. So people are using legitimate like lawfully written down constitutional ways to try to protest the regime and and check it right and balance against it if they don't like it but they're not fundamentally breaking the rules of the 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 yeah they're not fundamentally ignoring the rules of who gets to be in charge well agreed to this process and of course before that it was well probably you know like a bishop put a crown on the guy's head so god ordained him and and who's gonna argue with god right i mean not me that sounds like a losing argument and so there are other systems for having this legitimacy but this legitimacy of who's in charge is very important and so a lot of people hate trump in fact the majority of americans have always disapproved of his job as president but his legitimacy is fairly clear, right? And again, people say not my president on Twitter and they hold up signs, but, but they, they don't try to degrade or destroy the system. And in addition to the idea of legitimacy of position, there's legitimacy of ability to use and implement certain powers. And this kind of takes us back to all these protests that have been going on. Because in addition to Michigan, there have been a lot of protests in California, Huntington Beach, all throughout Orange County, some of LA beaches, a lot of it has been in around Southern California, but it's been taking place all over. There have been areas in Northern California, not along the beach, that have been defying statewide orders. So that's mm-hmm. Governor Gavin Newsom. And there really is a lot of tension there. I don't think anyone's saying, well, some people are saying Newsom isn't legitimate. There's the whole, hey, hey, ho, ho, Newsom has got to go sort of thing, right? Um, well, because, but they're probably saying that, you know, he could be removed. It's not that he's illegitimate. It's that he's like not doing a good job and should be removed. Right. Well, Which I think is I think, different from legitimacy. I think the argument is that he's using his powers uh, in an illegitimate way. So he's so, lost his legitimacy. It's like the mandate of heaven almost. Yeah. Right. Well, all of these emergency powers that he claims his government go- uh, governor which I, I don't know the legal details, so I can't speak to them in, in great detail. Right. Everyone's saying those infringe on my federally guaranteed constitutional rights of assembly. So you can't tell me to do that. Um, and so there's that tension between, uh, I don't think most people, well, I know most people don't think that Newsom's illegitimate because if you look at like the majority of people who have been polled in California, they actually support the quarantine. So that's kind of a separate issue. But yeah. of these people protesting, they're saying this is an illegitimate use of emergency powers and it infringes on my constitutional rights. And to our point in the beginning of the episode, once governments take powers, they tend to not. I mean, we haven't done a comprehensive study, but it's very frequent, very often that they don't voluntarily return them to the people. Right. It's easier to govern. It's easier to gain and remain in power when you have more power over the people that you govern. 
Yeah. And so most people, most of the time, are kind of accepting some system of legitimacy because you just want to agree on it generally. So like in Imperial China, it was the mandate of heaven, which was like super vaguely defined. And actually, I'm shocked it worked out so well. In Rome, it was when once they had gotten to the Imperial Age, it was also super unclear. It was like, did the and it kind of changed and morphed. So at some point it was like, does the Praetorian Guard like this guy? Because if so, sure, he's emperor. If not, he's dead. But but why is this legitimacy so important? Right. Like, why are so many people bought into this system, even if most people don't like the president? Right. And even if most people, you know, uh, disapprove of how he is dealing with the, you know, the greatest crisis that the U.S. has faced in his presidency, certainly. And it's and, and the reason people keep buying into the system, you know, and you know, there are all these tangential examples like Bernie fans are really cranky that Joe Biden is probably going to be the nominee and most of them are not going to start setting fire to everything. So why do people buy into the system? And it's because we know from history that when people stop buying into the system, a lot of people die. Like a lot of people die. And that's the dilemma, right? And that lets us segue to ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the problems with Rome, later, especially later in the imperial era, was that, but, but certainly during the entire imperial era, was that there was no written down way of deciding who's going to be the next bloody emperor. Other than, like, hopefully the current emperor assigns the next emperor before they die and doesn't get killed in the meantime. You know, like... Like, doesn't get stabbed in the meantime, and that that next emperor is someone that people are willing to live with. So it's not really a well-defined system, and it never was. And I happen to think that this was, like, kind of part of the problem of the whole Roman system, including the Byzantine system. Which, again, listen to Robin's podcast, The History of Byzantium, because it's super good. But these problems of legitimacy lead to people fighting for power, right? When everyone agrees on a system of legitimacy, you have peaceful transitions of power. You don't have civil wars when there isn't, you know, a, an agreed to system of legitimacy to decide who's in charge. You have bloody transitions of power and people like you and me die. And I don't want that either. So and so what this means is that even when the legitimate ruler is unfit, people are still going to, you know, people are still going to back them unless they have some other legitimate way to remove them. Unless it gets so bad or they feel it gets so bad that they look for illegitimate ways to remove them. And so, of course, in the United States, those legitimate means are impeachment and removal from the Senate. That was tried. We're a very tribal society, so it didn't exactly work out. There's also the 25th Amendment, which nobody's ever tried. And it's kind of it's it, it, you know, was it originally intended for presidents who are like literally comatose and not quite dead? Or is it just ones who you think aren't all right in the head? Who knows? But There's no legitimate path between election cycles. So there's no other legitimate path between election cycles. So if those don't work, like people suck it up. Right. And so even though Trump is unpopular and has been his entire presidency, people suck it up. And even though he's telling people to inject bleach in their bodies, people suck it up. And so given that there's no legitimate way to get rid of the guy that hasn't been tried, what do these folks need to do? So they've got some options. And sorry, we'll get back to the history in a in a hot second, but they got some options, right? How do how do the people that that work in the in DC work with this? Well, they can they can cater to the guy, 
they can help them as well as possible to try to get the best result, right? Like try to run around, kind of prop them up and give them their best advice. They can try to manipulate him and control him to get what they want through him. They can try to ignore him and just do what they want to do. They can try to get rid of him in some way, or they could just hang on and pray that they're going to ride out the storm or some combination of that. You know, and, and, and what route they choose depends on what the kind of like mix of fitness and lack of fitness looks like. I personally would like to propose that we call these uh, six categories of, of ways to, to manage this leader the uh, fog system for managing naked leaders. Oh, God. I don't know if I put enough, <laughs> enough time into it to actually have it be those six things and have it be the fog system. But, you know, maybe it will be one day. So F it. Here we go. I'm, I'm a few beers in. Fog system. Cater. Help. Manipulate. Ignore. Get rid of. Hang on a prey. Those are your options. Some combination of the above. And I know, I know, I just promised you ancient Rome. But given that, Eric, you just <laughs> mentioned a comatose leader, I think it makes more sense for us mm. to jump to, to, to the history of England first. Yes. With Henry VI. Henry yes. VI was what we would call today uh, someone with a severe mental illness. Yes. And there, there are different historians that have, you know, tried to figure out what exactly had diagnosed him one way or another. But he just could not manage. I mean, he he would walk around the castle talking to himself and like seeing things. And yes. eventually what it ended up happening is he just got locked up because people were like, he, he can't do anything. He can't make decisions. He can barely even manage himself. And they started making the decisions for him. So like the king's hand just kind of, you know, he stayed the king's hand, but de facto became the king. But then of course there was like another faction that's like, eh, you don't have that sort of authority. Where's your legitimacy? You ha- Where's your legitimacy? Exactly. So then they killed each other. Yes, the War of the Roses began because of Henry VI. Then, and Henry VI was such a disaster that he took over when England was on the ascendant during the Hundred Years' War. They had taken over like basically half of France. And Henry VI. Did you was- know that England used to control half of France? Think about yeah. that for a second. Yeah. It's the ultimate. I mean, it's kind of the ultimate the ultimate revenge, right? Because the, you know, the Normans invaded England. They were kind of French, right? They spoke French, but it was about as French as they were. And, and Francified England for quite a while in 1066. And then boom, in the 1300s, the English come roaring back and take over half of France and everything was looking great for the English. And then some kid named Joan shows up and she's from this place called Ark. I don't know. But she starts getting people really excited about coming back in a time when the president is Henry VI then isn't really able to muster. You know, he's just not he's just not right in the head. Even before he get locked up, he would kind of lock himself up for like weeks at a time. And he just like it's like maybe depressed or something, but he just like wouldn't want to talk. And and he was, you know, he's absent. And, and literally England was in its like biggest war ever since 1066. And, and due to that, like something had to be done. And so there are all these people going, what do we do? And one of the things I learned from David Crowther's History of England. Uh, so shout out to him. And by gosh, I hope he gets better for a lot of reasons. He's a dear friend. I hope he podcasts more. But uh, those of you who haven't listened to it, please go listen to History of England. It's a great show. Maybe pitch in, support the guy. But 
you know, as he talks about, one of the problems for England was that everything was that the, the king was at the center of everything. So if that disappears, what happens? Right. Because at least when when people were running around doing their own thing, they at least were like, well, I was appointed here by the king. And, you know, the king can eventually come like chat my hide if I'm, you know, misbehaving. So there's some legitimacy that comes from the king. But when the king is absent, what happens? These folks are running around trying to react and trying to run the kingdom without the king. Uh, And you can't get rid of the king, right? Or at least like initially you can't. You can't legitimately get rid of the king because it's a hereditary system. And so nobody's getting rid of the king. And even during the beginning of the Wars of the Roses, what's happening is people are fighting to have like physical control of the king. Because when you have physical control of the king, you can intimidate him into appointing you to all sorts of like positions of power. And, uh, and so like there was even this, what's so interesting is that even when the king was completely mentally absent and doing nothing, the legitimacy of the king as a role, as a position, as a uniform, right, was so powerful that people that when people were killing each other, they were killing each other over the opportunity to just possess the body of the king, even though the king himself was useless because having his body granted legitimacy. That's how important that legitimacy was. But it's also how badly things break down when the legitimate ruler, especially when all legitimacy flows through him, is unable to function. Real quick. So um, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, the England kind of turning it around in the war with Henry V, that was early 15th century, not 14th century. Thank you. And we've talked about the Battle of Agincourt before on the show. I think it was, God, I forget which episode it was. You, listeners, you know, we've done like 115 episodes now. We've, done, we've been around for a while now. We've produced a lot of content. Um, yeah. Thank you for listening. I forget what podcast episode it was, but we were talking about how often uh, People with certain types of entrenched power will resist change even to their own detriment. And we talked about mm. the Battle of Agincourt and how it's often represented as like the turning point in medieval warfare when the armored knight on a horseback became obsolete because... For the first time, they had no idea what was coming. For the fir- uh, the third time? Yeah, Everyone exactly. always talks about Agincourt. Like, oh, the English longbowmen surprised them with the efficacy of their piercing Boom, gotcha. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And and all the uh the knights, the French shining knights in armor, they just charged into like stakes and got hit by arrows. How could they have possibly seen that coming? It happened twice before. And this was during the Hundred Years War. It happened at the Battle of Crecy and happened at the Battle of Poitiers, which um like eighty ish and fifty ish fifty or sixty years before Agincourt. And they kept doing it. They kept doing it. So anyways, this over eighty years. Eighty years. This was this eighty years. Yeah. Th- think about how long the Hundred Years' War is. Think about how long a hundred years it's is. A hundred years ago years. That's was how the long Spanish it is. flu. Wow. And yeah. within that 80-year period, it kept. they still did the same thing, even though it never it like had stopped work. Anyways, point being, when we talk about Henry V, Henry V led the English at Agincourt. It's when the English had invaded France again and were really doing well. And um, they, but they had lost a lot of people on one campaign and were kind of in retreat and got an entrenched position on a hill and just killed a lot of French knights. Anyway, so this case study lets us understand that 
is, is at least one example of when the king, when the leader is just totally absent, what happens is, you know, there is a, it, it could, it would be true even of the United States if, again, if something like the 25th Amendment didn't exist, where, yeah, there's multiple powers, but like the executive is a real power. And so what happens if the executive, and, and in the case of England, executive was like all powers at the time, what happens if they're absent? And there's no legitimate way to replace them. Well, you get people fighting because something has to get done. And every time someone is in power, right, there are interests involved as well, specific interests among the elites. And so someone goes like, okay, well, I'll take charge. And somebody else says, wait a minute, why, the, why not me? Right? Why not me? And that's where you had the War of the Roses because like two families kind of had a claim to the throne. The Red Rose and the White Rose. I forget exactly who they were, but the Tudors were the ones who ended up fixing it. I feel a little embarrassed here not knowing, but but essentially it was Henry VI's absence that led to the War of the Roses. And we bring this example up first in part because it's, it's such a good case study in understanding why legitimacy matters and why if a ruler loses legitimacy, things go to heck. And that's somehow I curse so much on this show that me saying heck somehow stands out. But but that's the big idea there, right? And so so what happens when you just totally you know the six things you could do? What happens if you just totally ignore people die? And uh, and that's it. I, I googled this real quick. Um, Wars of the Roses. So it was uh, Yorks and Lancastrians. Ah, jeez, yes. Oh, and the oh, God, the thing with the Wars of the Roses for me is that it's it's one of those like it's when politics was very familial, and so there's yeah. so many details about this person or another, and often they have the same like last name, and it's hard for it doesn't stick in my mind as well as some other periods of history do. But the Tudors were like one of the like offshoots of I. Th- Let's see. They, York? Ri- no. Uh. Yes. Yeah. No, wait. So Richard III was the brother of Edward IV. Edward IV was a uh, uh, York, right? Edward God, I don't know. The IV was... Yeah, his father, Richard of York. So Edward IV, uh, pretty good king, something, something. Richard III, his brother, won't get into detail. Everyone thought he had a hunchback. I've read some Shakespeare on him before on the show. If you want to dig through some of the old episodes and find it in original pronunciation. And then the Tudors were some offshoot of the Lancastrians then, I guess, but like a not very related branch. And they kind of came at the last minute and stole the show. But the point is, because Henry VI lost legitimacy and people began to declare legitimacy for themselves, even though you had rulers in that, very violent period like Edward IV that are generally considered to be strong and very competent leaders that did well given the circumstances that were handed to them, uh, you basically get like four decades of civil war. And you end up with Henry VII, father of Henry VIII. But Eric, one of the things that I really liked about how you outlined this show when you ex- explained it to me is, is uh, well, you, you, Eric gave me four different examples of, of periods that he wanted to talk about that demonstrated how like the loss of legitimacy 
or the coming to power of like a not particularly competent ruler played out and like what some of the consequences were. And he gave me England, Rome, China, and the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros, which if you're a true Game of Thrones fan, you'll know it was inspired by the Wars of the Roses. Indeed. What's the story? Well, yeah, I mean, it's the story is the the king was who's King Robert, who's essentially Edward the Fourth. Right. Edward the Fourth is this like lusty uh, drunk, loves his food. I mean, reminds me of myself in a lot of ways. I don't know. And Eric for uh, king. Yeah, exactly. And a great warrior. Right. So Robert Baratheon is clearly Edward the Fourth. And then Edward the Fourth dies. And and Game of Thrones fast forwards a little bit, but then then it's a fight between the La- Lancasters. I mean Lannisters. Oh, sorry. Yes, very not, different. Not the, very different. And the Starks who are the Yorks, and they're fighting over the throne. And then, of course, at some point, it diverges because, like, I don't know. There's like magic, but but otherwise, like the first book, a Game of Thrones. Right. This is the Song of Ice and Fire. The Game of Thrones is about. The War of the Roses, the Yorks versus the Lancasters. And they sort of skipped the Henry VI part of it, but essentially, like, this great king, Edward, it's Mad great warrior. King. The Mad King. Well, before him was the Mad King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, well, but, oh, Henry VI came after the fourth. Never the mind. Ne- never mind. Sorry, right, keep going. Right. Yeah. yeah. Edward the Fourth was Robert Baratheon. And, yeah, anyway. So, so, you know, he dies and basically everything goes to hell because he's, like, such a powerful personality. But what's interesting is England also had to deal with an Edward IV who had checked out, right? He just totally checked out. And that's one of the interesting things about being king, right? In the United States, we've had a number of presidents who have voluntarily chosen to only serve one term. And is there like duty, right? Like they get elected by the people and is there their like dread duty, to to serve the people. And what's interesting about being a king is like, yeah, you kind of serve, but also people kind of serve you. Like you're appointed by God, you're kind of a big deal. Whereas in the United States, civilian, you know, and sorry, and Western, you know, in Europe and 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 most places now. So I don't want to say the United States is special in the modern age, but in 1776, the United States is special in saying, like, maybe the guy in charge is just a servant leader, right? And and that, and Evan also was like, yeah, that's good, great idea. So what was different back then is that you had both someone who, who had to serve and was served, which is not true anymore. And so at some point, you know, and, and kings couldn't just go, or it was hard for kings to just go, hey, uh, can you just like go elect someone else? I'm, I'm done. I'm tired of this, right? I want to go back to my farm. I want to play Cincinnatus. I want to... <laughs> You know, but yeah. and and so they were kind of stuck unless their kid was ready to rock, at which point they could maybe abdicate anyway. So they would just check out and Edward the fourth checked out and Robert Baratheon checked out. Right. And so Robert Baratheon checked out, but he's still in charge. And you'll notice that nobody openly opposed Robert Baratheon. Right. Nobody's like, ah, oh, we got to get rid of this guy. And and part of us, he was popular. He'd have all these freaking tournaments and. Uh, you know, you just throw money out in the streets. I was like, wow, this guy's great. And he, of course, made the kingdom broke. Blew but the this, treasury. He blew the treasury. And But this um, this episode is not about the Robert Baratheons. It's about the small council, isn't it? And how did they deal? Who was on the small 
Council. Well, his hand was previously, oh gosh, the guy who, uh, he's the Lord of the Eyrie. Uh, what was his name? G- um, Baelish? No, before that. Uh, his um, hand, his, at the beginning, his hand is dying because it's oh, poisoned. I don't remember. Anyway. But it became uh, Ned Stark. It became Ned Stark. So Ned Stark's the hand of the king who kind of speaks for the king when the king's not around, which is literally 100% of the time in the case of Broderick Baratheon. And uh, yeah, Baelish is in it. I believe he's master of coin. Yeah. And Varys is master of whispers, which he hangs on to for a surprisingly long time. And I forget who's in charge of military affairs at the time. But these guys are trying to sort things out on their own. And what's interesting is they have like most power to make most decisions, except they can't say no to the king. Right. So what's the way they deal? They do the best they can, but they feel like they have no authority to say, hey, Bobby B, you can't like Bobby B, man. (laughs) Hey, Bobby, you can't keep spending money on these stupid tournaments. We're running out of money. Like, or they tried to, but he couldn't listen. So they couldn't stop him. They felt like they had no legitimate veto. And so the way that they dealt was they did the best they could. They made the best decisions they could with what they had. And they tried as much as they could and failed to influence the king to spend money a little more wisely. And so ultimately, they didn't go for ignore. They didn't go for replace they didn't go for manipulate they went for um you know help as much as possible to try to get the best result possible and a little bit of hang on and pray right and it went badly but not too badly until he was killed and and his hand of the king was killed so as you may have noticed then the title of this episode the passion of Tyrion and Varys yes that's that's how it all ties in. How do you deal with a leader that ultimately has power, but is either not up to the task in one particular area or another, or unwilling to engage or unable to engage in the case of Henry VI? Right. What do the second or third in charges do? And oftentimes, as we saw with the War of the Roses, but there are countless examples throughout history. For example... We didn't end up getting uh, into too much detail on Rome in this episode. And since this episode is beginning to track longer than we anticipated, we're, we're actually going to do a second episode where we'll loop back in on ancient Rome. We'll also talk about China and Russia. So check back in on that. But there are countless examples beyond the Wars of the Roses where when the legitimacy of the ruling authority became questioned, you saw a lot of violence as a result as people competed to control that power. Yes. And that was interestingly not the problem in our next episode or our next example in Westeros, which is, of course, we're going to talk about, since we're talking about Tyrion and Varys, our leader is Daenerys of the House Targaryen, first of her name, the Unburnt Queen of the Andals, the Ronyar and the First Men, Queen of Marine, Khaleesi of the Great Glass Grass Sea, Protector of the Realm, Lady Regent of the Seven Kingdoms, Breaker of Chains, and Mother of Dragons. Sorry, my I I I lost track there for a second. Could you repeat that? Sure. It's <clears throat> Daenerys of the House Targaryen, the first of her name, the unburnt queen of the Andals, the Ronyar, the first men, queen of marine, Khaleesi, the great grass sea, protector of the realm, lady region of the seven kingdoms, breaker of chains, and mother of dragons. God at that time. Thank you. Okay, cool. Good. So 
Yeah. What's up with Daenerys? Uh, well, she takes power uh, by force, but has a claim uh, to legitimacy through the lineage of her um, family, right? Yes. It was her brother who was the Mad King? No, it was her father, right? No, it was her dad, yeah. Her father was the Mad King, and her brother was uh, the guy who tried to take power but got killed by Cal uh, Drogo. Yep. Um, For being a douche. That's right. So, uh, da 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 dum. Yeah, Mad King. Uh, but because he was still the legitimate king, because the Targaryens ru- ruled for so long, and his inability to rule, um, which maybe if it's you know anachronistic and the timeline doesn't match up, that still reeks of Henry the Sixth to me. That has to be the analog, right? Well, maybe the problem with the Mad King is that he was so sadistic. Whereas, like yeah, Henry the Sixth was almost sainted. Yeah. Like he was almost, or or whatever the term is, he's almost made a saint because he's like such a sweet dude and loved God and Jesus and monks and praying. He was really into that. Good and, point. And he was generally likable when he wasn't drooling. Unfortunately. And, yeah. And, yeah, you're right. It's not, it's not a good comparison. Yeah. yeah, I actually don't know which English king is a good version of, like, the sadistic mad king. I mean, maybe Henry VIII, the chronology doesn't line up, but, like, kinda. Except, I don't think, I don't think the mad king has a true analogy in this story. Fair enough. Anyways, Daenerys still claims legitimacy through her father and through her familial uh, lineage, but then of course the government that was established after she, uh, after her family was forcefully taken from power, that has now been around for a while before Daenerys has grown up and come back around to try to reclaim the throne. Says no, oh, wait a minute, of years, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, they they say, well, wait a minute, your family lost the ability to rule because the guy in charge was in either incompetent or like sadistic and cruel and not a good ruler. And like part of the deal is like, yes, the legitimacy flows through your family, but you have to actually be able to kind of manage things. Otherwise everything falls apart. Right. What's interesting is this feels a little bit like the Chinese concept, the Imperial Chinese concept of the mandate of heaven, right? It's basically like, yeah, your dynasty can keep going. The legitimate, follow successor to you as one of your kids you actually get to choose we actually won't cover imperial china we're going to cover mao later but but uh and there's all these examples of super unprepared emperors in the history of china by the way chris stewart agora podcast network totally killer podcast on the the history of china but it feels a little bit like there's a little bit of mandate of heaven going on which is like if you're crappy enough as a leader, like, yeah, okay, cool. You know, primogeniture, succession to the sun, sure. Unless you're awful enough. And if you're so awful that it's just untenable anymore, then, okay, we got to get rid of you. And you lose the mandate of heaven. Exactly. Yeah. But then we get to the Khaleesi, right? So how does she build her legitimacy? How does how does Daenerys of the House Targaryen, first of her name, the Unburnt, the Queen of the Andals, the Verner, and the First Men, Queen of Queen of Marine, 
Khaleesi, the great grass sea, protector of the realm, lady region of the seven kingdoms, breaker of chains, and mother of dragons, build her legitimacy. Well, you it's could say by... that again. <laughs> no, don't say it again. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so our listeners are like, dear God, dear God, stop. not again. <laughs> just stop. Um, anyone who's read Pyramids by Terry Pratchett knows how I feel right now, and I'll say no more. But the. How does she build her legitimacy originally? It's, you know, start by she's a she's a sex slave of the call, but kind of a wife slave of the call. And then the call dies. And then through her, like, it, it is through being able to survive fire that she builds her legitimacy with the, oh, gosh, what are they called? Grassy people. Horses. Oh, call of the... Um... Anyway, those guys. Damn it. Ugh, embarrassing. Anyway, yeah, those guys. I, I don't like that. Dothraki. God. Dothraki. Thank Damn you. It. Sorry. So, Sorry, folks. Yeah. So the Dothraki. So she builds the legitimacy first among the Dothraki. And then with them, she goes and frees a bunch of slaves with her, you know, by tricking, you know, by, by being clever. Right. So she frees some slaves and through good deeds. So first through magic and and, and awe. She builds legitimacy, and then through good deeds, she builds legitimacy. She frees a bunch of slaves in Slaver's Bay, and then they're willing to fight for her, and then she's ready to rock, right? She's ready to go west. It's Westeros, and, you know, she wants to just take King's Landing, but how is she going to build her legitimacy next? She's going to do it by trying to help people. Or, sorry, she fights for a bit, you know, kills some dudes, you know. Then there's some legitimacy that comes through, through winning wars, Right through conquests, right, right of conquest. It's a thing in real history. It's a thing in the Song of Ice and Fire, where look, I won the war. I mean, what do you want? I'm now in charge. So Robert Baratheon had that. He had right of conquest. That's why he had legitimacy. She went for that move for legitimacy, and then she decided to like help out the North and try to invade from the North going south after helping defeat the Night King, which was a pretty stupid episode, but. Um, but the problem was as brilliant as she was in many ways. Right. And we can decide as we're listening, whether like Trump is brilliant in many ways and flawed in others, whether he's not that bright and the kind of which, which box he falls into, which is why he's having trouble. But, but, you know, but there is an experience gap and a training gap and, um, you know, and therefore a, a readiness gap for Daenerys of the House Targaryen, first of her name, the Unburnt Queen of the Andals, the Royar, and the First Men, Queen of Marine, Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, Protector of the Realm, Lady Region of the Seven Kingdoms, Breaker of Chains, and the Mother of Dragons. And so, and so how do her number two and three in charge help her with that? And we're going to keep talking about this exact same topic, but... About ancient Rome and China's adversarial relation with Russia on the next episode. So you guys know how things ended for Tyrion and Varys. You know they kept trying to give her good advice; she wasn't listening. Um, they decided at some point that she was mad, and that ultimately ended up being the problem. Which, like the problem with the show, is that there's no reason in particular she had to be mad, but maybe she was. I don't know. But um, Varus ended up deciding that, you know, if we look at Fogg's six things that you can do uh, with a with a with a leader, that's not so good. You know, so they were both at help as well as possible to get the best result, a little bit of cater, 
a little bit of manipulate control, no ignoring because that would get you killed, a little bit of hang on prey. And then at some point, Varus goes for get rid of them, um, get rid of her, and she finds out and she burns some dragon fire. And then at some point, Tyrion decides he's done with her after she burns King's Landing and tries to get rid of her. Um, and then Jon Snow eventually gets rid of her because he decides it's the right thing. And so, you know, these guys are in this awkward position for a long time until they're committed to either being, you know, they get this problem of, of being half in, half out, right? Like, not just sitting there going, wow, you are the greatest thing ever. It's like, yeah, yeah, I think you're the right thing, but you're flawed. And then maybe you're the right thing, but you're flawed. And then, okay, you're probably not the right thing, but we don't have anything better. And then, okay, we have Jon Snow and he's better and we should kill her. And um, that, was the, that was the progression that both of these guys went through. And so what's interesting is the strategy can change over time depending on how the, how the leader's acting. So next time on Reconsider, we'll get back to Mao Zedong, chairman of the Communist Party of China. We're going to get back. We're going to talk about Caligula, Nero, Commodus. It's going to be a good time. So uh, we'll see you guys next time. Remember, folks, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. And this is Eric signing off. We'll see you within two weeks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW.